The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we get started this morning, let's make sure we're in fellowship. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're indeed grateful that we can come together this morning to be challenged by your word. Scripture teaches us that it is your word that you use to sanctify us under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit. And as we walk by the Spirit, he takes your word and he transforms us. And the whole process of the Christian life is a process of change, changing us from who we are under the domination of our sin nature and control of the influence of the culture around us and transforming us into the image of Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that we might be responsive to your word today, that we might not keep it at arm's length, but that we might be open and receptive, that as God the Holy Spirit reveals to us that which we need to learn, that which motivates and challenges us, that which uh, teaches and instructs us on the path of righteousness, that we would be responsive to apply that consistently in our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We find ourselves today in Revelation 3.21. Revelation 3.21 brings us awfully close to the end of this middle section of the book of Revelation where we have gone through the evaluation reports of the seven congregations in Asia Minor in the western part of Turkey. And as we've gone through these evaluation reports, we've made applications showing how these different characteristics, both the positive qualities and virtues, as well as the negative, (coughs) indicate the general trends that take place in congregations and in individual lives of believers down through the church age. So inherent within these evaluation reports is a challenge a challenge to every believer to respond to what is taught and to apply what needs to be applied. And there is the incentive that is given in these passages to be an overcomer. And as we come to our passage here, in verse 21 we read, For the seventh time, to him who overcomes, I will grant 
to sit with me on my throne. A new element is added, a new incentive, a new reward offered to believers for those who press on to spiritual maturity and are classified as overcomer believers. The Lord says, To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on his throne. Now, one of the things that hits me every now and then is I come to a verse and I say, Well, we ought to move through this verse fairly quickly. Then the more I study and the more I get into it, all of a sudden I think, hmm, this may take a week or two because there's some really interesting things that are going on in this particular verse and this brings up this whole doctrine of the overcomer believer. The term overcomer is based on this Greek word nikao. At the beginning of this verse, it's an articular present active participle. Now, what that basically means is that this functions like a noun. It's just a term for the overcomer. And some people will try to emphasize the present tense aspect of verbs like, of participles like this. But when it functions as an adjective or as a relative adjective, then it is basically a noun. The tense aspect in terms of continuation simply drops, uh, drops out of the, uh, emphasis in the word. It is simply used as a noun. And the word means a victor, a winner, a conqueror, an overcomer. It's a cognate to the noun nike, meaning victory or success. The verb has the idea to overpower, to gain victory, to win. And so it is talking about victorious believers in the Christian life. But that statement reveals my conclusion, but there is a tremendous amount of debate over this, and I want to make you aware of that, and we have to understand the background uh, to this to some degree. But before we get started, I want to do a little review. I've covered this before, but I want to emphasize it again, that there are distinctions, and there will be distinctions among believers when we get to heaven. But there are some things that we will all have in common. First of all, Every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ during this church age will be raptured. When the Lord Jesus Christ returns in the air for the church, it does not matter if you are carnal, if you are a reprobate believer, if you are uh, admired in your sin nature, or whether you are pressing forward, whatever it may, this, your situation is, you get raptured because you are in the body of Christ. And positionally, you are righteous because you have the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. So every believer will get raptured. At that time, every believer will receive a resurrection body. We will have a body that will be similar to that uh, exhibited by the Lord Jesus Christ after his resurrection. So we have the, we all have the same kind of body. We will all have perfect happiness. Though the non-overcomer believer, the defeated believer, will have a period of shame at the judgment seat of Christ, all believers will have perfect happiness for all eternity. However, there will be some distinctions of that, as we'll see in a minute. And all will have eternal life, and all will spend eternity in heaven. Those things will be true for every believer, whether you are a victorious believer or a defeated believer. However, there are some contrasts. There are definitely distinctions made between believers who are victorious 
and those who are not victorious. And I don't think it's real clear to many of us where we stand on this, and it won't be clear until we stand before the Lord Jesus Christ at the Bema Seat. He is the perfect judge. He's omniscient. He knows everything. He knows it better than we do. And he is the one who will be able to uh, to properly evaluate us and reward us. And remember, the focus of the judgment seat of Christ is not to expose our failures or flaws or inadequacies during this life, but to expose that which is good. What is burned up at the judgment seat of Christ is the wood, hay, and straw, not the gold, silver, and precious stone. So the whole focus of the Bema Seat is to reveal that which we have done that is divine good, not to expose failure. Although if after everything is burned up, there's nothing, there will be shame and embarrassment because of lost opportunity. So let's look at a contrast between victorious believers and defeated believers. First of all, the victorious believer receives rewards, privileges, and blessings at the judgment seat of Christ. This is in a very familiar passage to most of you, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. This is where we're told that everyone builds on that common foundation, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. Every believer has a foundation laid at the instant that you express faith alone in Christ alone. That, at that instant, we receive the imputed righteousness of Christ, and we have the opportunity from that day until the day we go to be with the Lord or the rapture occurs to do something with what God provides for us. He provides at least 40 things for us at the instant of salvation. He blesses us, Paul says in Ephesians 1, with every spiritual blessing. We have the assets necessary to handle any and every situation in life. God has given us the Holy Spirit who indwells us. He has sanctified us positionally. He has given us a completed canon of Scripture. And to every believer who's alive today in the beginning of the 21st century, we have the availability of Bible teaching unlike any other era in history. We not only have... Uh, in reprint forms, thousands and thousands of great doctrinal publications and books that have been written by believers down through the ages. But we also have quite a few very uh, good Bible teachers alive today, and we have numerous others that whose teaching is preserved on some kind of electronic format over the last 30 or 40 years since World War II. There is so much that's available today for every believer to learn the Word of God. It is, it is just amazing that people ignore it to the degree that they do. I think that's a sign of divine judgment on our generation and in our, on our culture, that we have more spiritual truth available than at any time in history, and yet we ignore it more than at any other time in history. So we have all of these various assets that the Lord has provided for us, and we have to decide how we're going to live our lives. And that's the analogy in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, is you're going to build something on that foundation, whether you were saved when you were five years old or whether you are saved when you were 15 or 25, for the rest of your life you are constructing something on that foundation of your salvation in Jesus Christ. And that is going to accrue to something that has eternal value, which we call divine good, 
or it will not. It will be done in the power of God the Holy Spirit, walking by the Spirit, abiding in Christ, all those various terms that we've studied in Scripture, or it will be done out of your own strength, your own effort, your own sin nature, just nothing more than morality and having the facade of a relationship with God. But the decision is yours. What is your life going to count for? And I know from looking at many of you and from talking with many of you, as we get a little older, and especially as you near that 40-year mark or 50-year mark or 60-year mark or 70-year mark, we become more and more aware that the time is short and that what we do in this life may be fun, it may be stimulating, it may uh, achieve various goals that we adopted when we were younger, but we realize that when it's all said and done, the only thing that's going to count is the doctrine that's in our soul and what we've done in the power of God the Holy Spirit that will endure forever. That's the only thing that we take with us. And it's on that basis that we will be rewarded, granted privileges in heaven, and given various blessings. That develops the spiritual life that you have today is developing a capacity for leadership and responsibility and uh, for leadership, responsibility, ruling and reigning with the Lord Jesus Christ when we get to heaven. Second thing we learn is that the victorious believer is going to be praised personally by the Lord Jesus Christ at the Bema seat. Well done. Good and faithful servant is the term that's used in Matthew chapter uh, 25. I believe that's verses 12 and following. Third, victorious believers have different levels of privilege and authority in the kingdom. Some are going to have authority over smaller groups. Some are going to have authority over larger groups. But this is part of what we see in our study of the overcomer believer in these two chapters of Revelation. Revelation 2.7 talks about the fact that the one who overcomes will have the privilege of eating from the tree of life. This is going to be in the center of heaven, a special privileged place called the paradise of God. Furthermore, in verse 11 of chapter 2, we're told that the overcomer believer won't be hurt by the second death. He'll have a special crown in verse 10, a crown of life, and he won't be hurt by the second death. And we studied that and saw that that means that your rewards won't be lost and perish in the lake of fire. Revelation 2.17, we have hidden manna and a white stone. We're given a new name. And all of this speaks of special privilege and access in uh, heaven. Uh, Revelation 2.27, we will rule with the Lord Jesus Christ. And we will also be given the morning star as a special award. Uh, Revelation 3.5, we are clothed in white garments, a special uniform of some kind, indicating our status as victorious Believers, There's a memorial set up as, as a pillar in the temple uh, memorializing that which we have done. And we indicate that we are, at the, that we, in the pillar in the temple, we are um, a, a key element in the worship of God, serving as priests and kings in the millennial kingdom. And we're given a new name, which indicates a, a new position, new privilege in the millennial kingdom. That's all part of what we have as victorious believers, but there are certain things that are true of, uh, well, we're not to defeated believers yet. Fourth, for victorious believers. 
The victorious believer is going to participate at the wedding supper following the marriage of the bride, the church, to Christ. Those who are defeated, those who are failures in the spiritual life, are not allowed to enter this special wedding feast. They will enter into the kingdom. They won't inherit the kingdom, but they will be excluded from the marriage of the bride, Matthew 25, 1-3, and Revelation 19, 6-8. Victorious believers will also participate with Jesus Christ in his final defeat of Satan, uh, Psalm 110.1 and Revelation chapter 19. Sixth, victorious believers will rule with Christ as kings and priests. We will have reigning responsibilities uh, in the millennial kingdom and on into eternity. Now, defeated believers. Defeated believers will fail to, are believers who fail to put doctrine first. They fail to apply the word and they fail to grow spiritually. Somehow along the way, they are just overwhelmed by the details of life and they just never get to that point where they realize that going to Bible class, listening to doctrine on a consistent basis, daily, hearing the word of God, being refreshed by the word of God, having our thinking shaped by the word of God, is the most important thing that we can possibly do. And I watch so many people struggle with this. And one of the times that I watch is when you have a young couple who's first having children. That is, those of you who've had children know that is a time when all of a sudden your whole world changes and there's all kinds of demands and there's all kinds of issues. It's very easy for people just to become overwhelmed by all the responsibilities and the time demands and you'll watch them disappear for a while and then they'll show up again and then it's a, it's a time of, of, um, learning to adjust their priorities or schedules so they get done that which needs to get done. And I've watched this many times as a pastor over the years. You'll see people who are there fairly regularly. They're, if they haven't made those commitments, those priority commitments to learn the Word before they start having kids, then as soon as those kids come along, they show up every now and then. And then they have to deal with other other issues. But that's a real test testing in time period. The other one at a time period is retirement. You may not realize that, but when you get a little older and all of a sudden the kids are gone, there's a certain motivation you have to be in church because of the kids. And all of a sudden when you hit 60, 65, 70, you think, well, I served the church when I was younger. Now it's time for me to relax uh, travel a little bit. i got to go see the grandkids this weekend, the other set of grandkids next weekend. And rather than being involved in Christian service at a time when you have a lot to offer uh, in, in retirement, you have much more time on your hands, and there's so much you can do for a local church, what we see is that seniors tend to just drop out, and they get involved with all kinds of other things, which is really sad. I think those are two of the most important testing periods in life. And there's a lot of differences. In, in my first church, the mean age in the church, that means the, the age of which you had an equal number below the age and an equal number above the age, the mean age was 58. And that included all the bed babies in the nursery. And I learned a lot at that congregation, learning about the fact, and I was 28, so that was, 
That was a real challenge. And people who are 55, 60, 65, 70, 75 often are not asking the same questions or interested in the answers that are being asked by 25 and 30-year-olds. And you have to recognize there's differences. We go through different seasons of life, and there's different tests and different uh, different issues. And I've had occasion twice now in the last uh, few months to talk to pastors, young guys who have gone to congregations that are primarily older and having to deal with some of these issues that, well, I can't get anybody to do anything anymore. They're all retired. They, wanna, they don't want to commit to anything. And that's just another test in life. But it comes back to that issue of putting doctrine first, counting the cost, uh, learning the word, applying the word, and growing spiritually. Second, defeated believers are often wonderful people, and they're successful in the things of temporal existence and the details of life. And part of the reason they're very successful in those areas is because rather than taking the time to learn the word, grow spiritually, and be involved in a local church, they take that time to be involved in their profession or their career. And that's one of the tests when, when we come to priorities, is where is the, how do we balance this? On the one hand, there's nothing wrong with pursuing excellence in your career, and there are certain careers that people make choices in that are extremely demanding time-wise, and I understand that, and that has, that has to be factored in. And thank God there's video and and MP3s and everything today to take up the slack. But often one, one is successful in one area at the expense of their spiritual life, and that leads to defeat in the spiritual life. Defeated believers become distracted by the details of life as they get older and become more successful, and they have the opportunities to take part in all of the pleasures and all the distractions that we have in our world today. Unlike our grandparents, we have so many things that we can do on a weekend. You can get done with work on Friday, hop a plane, and be anywhere in the country and go wake up the next morning and go skiing or go sailing or go scuba diving. You can do all kinds of things and then come back Sunday night and so much for church or doctrine. And this happens with a certain number of people. So they just become defeated by the distractions of life, the hobbies and uh, various things that are available to people today. Uh, leads to a temporal loss of blessing and happiness. If you get distracted from this priority, then in this life you will be distracted and you won't realize the blessings that God has for you in this life. And it will lead to a loss of real happiness because we can't base our happiness, our contentment, our stability on the things of this world. Fifth, there will be for you, if you are a defeated believer, shame at the judgment seat of Christ. Think about the most embarrassing, shameful moment in your life. That is just microscopic compared to the shame that we will feel at the judgment seat of Christ as a defeated believer because we will suddenly see the reality for what it is. We will understand how we failed and failed with lost opportunity and there will be true shame at the judgment seat of Christ. Six, there's a loss of rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. That which is not distributed, that which is not given, there will also is the indication in several passages that there may be a loss of reward because a believer grew to a certain stage and then they became complacent and lost significant ground. Seventh, 
But these believers will, though they are disinherited at the judgment seat of Christ, in other words, they do not receive an inheritance, they don't lose their salvation. They enter the kingdom, but they do not inherit the kingdom. That is, they are not a participant in the ruling and reigning aspect which the Lord is training us for. Eighth, their rewards will then be destroyed. That is, the rewards that aren't distributed will be destroyed in the lake of fire according to Revelation 21.8. That's where it says their part will be in the uh, lake of fire. That word part is the Hebrew, I mean, excuse me, the Greek word miros, which indicates share, portion, or that part of an inheritance that is destroyed in the lake of fire. Okay, back to Revelation 3.21. To him who overcomes, that's the challenge. Are we going to be one of those victorious believers, one of the overcomer believers, or are we going to be a defeated believer? Now, we have to understand what this means and it's it, it brings it's part of an entire debate that goes on in our uh, theological world today and has for a number of years. There are actually two views that are set forth on this idea of an overcomer. There are those who believe that an overcomer is that's equivalent to every true believer. In other words, if you are regenerate. Regeneration itself identifies you with Christ and makes you an overcomer. So therefore, every believer is an overcomer. Every overcomer is a believer. If you don't overcome, then you weren't truly saved. Ah, now you see where this fits in. This is part of the whole debate over lordship salvation versus free grace. Now, last night I was in an event and somebody asked me, said, would you please just clarify for me what this whole lordship salvation thing really is? I'm just not sure I have a handle on it. And that may be true for some of you. And I gave it a little illustration and they said, well, that really makes it clear. So I'm going to say it again this morning. And this is how I, I try to picture this when I'm talking to somebody and saying, well, do you hold a free grace or lordship? That's uh have a hypothetical situation of a drug dealing pimp in Harlem and he's just uh, he's he's selling crack and drugs and everything else and all his various uh, uh, prostitutes and and he comes along and runs into a missionary with Salvation Army now there are some missionaries of Salvation Army that get the gospel straight and this missionary gets the gospel straight and gives him the gospel explains the plan of salvation that all are sin you can't get to heaven on the basis of any of your works which is good news to this uh, crackhead pimp because he knows that he has nothing valuable to give God and he could never earn it if he had to and so he grasps the whole concept of grace and that Christ died for him paid the penalty for all of his sins and he uh uh, rejoices over that, and then he goes home and uh, decides to celebrate his usual way of celebrating, and he gets high, and then his uh, uh, two or three uh, hoes that he's living with come in, and they're all uh, managed to persuade him that this was just a really stupid thing to do, that somebody really uh, just sold him a bunch of religious lies, and so he continues in his former lifestyle uh, doing drugs and uh, living with various uh, prostitutes, and three or four weeks later, he he dies. 
overdoses. Is he going to go to heaven or not? He understood the gospel. He trusted Christ. going to go to heaven or not? There's a difference. If you say he's going to go to heaven, you understand grace. If you say, no, well, you know, he never really had works that were consistent with true faith, then you have slipped into what is called lordship salvation. The idea that the only way you can be assured of your salvation is on the basis of fruit production. And that if I have uh, works that are consistent with uh, salvation, then that's how I know I'm saved. We know we're saved because the Scripture gives us the promises that if we believe in Christ, we will have eternal salvation. That's the only thing that matters. It's not based on works. You can't slip them in the back door, which is what lordship salvation uh, does, is it slips works in the back door. You don't need works to be saved, but the way you know you're saved is by having works that are consistent uh, with faith, and that is part of this whole debate, because in lordship salvation, the advocates of that will say, well, all believers, therefore, are overcomers. There are no believers who are failure. They'll also deny the existence of true carnal believers. It's all these things uh, fit together. Now, as we look at this particular passage, there's three things that we have to identify as we, let me go back to the verse, as we look at this verse. The first phrase says, to him who overcomes. So we have to identify clearly who this overcomer is. Second the thing that we have to identify, and this is part of our study on overcomer, is when did Christ overcome? Is this verb, nikao, ever applied to what Jesus Christ did? And to what is it applied that he did? That's important to understand the concept. And then the third thing is, what is this thing about the thrones? Does Je- is there one throne and Jesus and the Father both share the throne? Or are there ultimately going to be two distinct thrones? And that is very important, and we won't get to that, of course, until uh, next week. That is a crucial aspect of this because that relates to our future destiny and getting a handle on this, this whole doctrine about the believer ruling and reigning with Jesus Christ. So we have to answer this question. Is every true believer an overcomer, or is it only believers who advance in the Christian life? Now, I had a little glitch before I came here. I spent an hour and a half this morning working on a PowerPoint presentation, and somehow it didn't get saved, and I lost a whole bunch of stuff. So things aren't on the, on the slide presentation aren't all that they should be. But the real problem in understanding this comes out of another passage written by the Apostle John, and this is in 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5, verse 4. For whatever is born of God, John writes, overcomes the world. Whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And what you will find is numerous people who will come along and say, see, that tells us that it is the person who's regenerate that's the overcomer. And at first glance, when you look at that verse, it seems to suggest that the regenerate person is identical to an overcomer. Now, the way some people try to resolve that is, well, Paul, well, John used the word overcomer a little differently in, in the epistle to John than he does in Revelation 2 and 3. But I don't think that's right. That's, they haven't dug enough into the text 
of, of uh, 1 John. And we've gone through some of this before, but while I was looking at this verse this morning, or yesterday afternoon again, something hit me that had not hit me because I hadn't exegeted this verse or, or, this, or dealt with this issue through the lens of 321. Because Jesus says, To him who overcomes, as I also overcame. Now that is a key, key verse, a key phrase in the verse. So we have to look at that. Now, when we talk about this concept of overcoming, the first question we ought to ask is, what are they overcoming? That's a key, key question. If the, first ver- if the first view is correct, that is, the, that every true believer is an overcomer, then overcoming would be equivalent to what happens at salvation, or, in other words, overcoming would be equivalent to justification, redemption, reconciliation. It would be related to the work of Christ on the cross and the application of that work of Christ on the cross to our lives. And justification means that we receive the imputation of Christ's righteousness to cover our unrighteousness. And so we're saved on the basis of Christ's righteousness. Redemption means that our sins are paid for. Reconciliation means that because we're justified, we now have peace, key word for what's coming up, we now have peace with God. Now, all three of these doctrines, justification, redemption, reconciliation, all deal with the sin problem. They all deal with the work of Christ on the cross. And so we, if, if the first option is true, then overcoming is related to salvation. On the cross, Jesus Christ was made sin. This is the issue on the cross. 2 Corinthians 5, 20, 21, for He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. In other words, what happened on the cross would be that we would say that Christ overcame sin. That would be the issue. If the first option is true, that an overcomer is synonymous with being a believer. But if the second view is the true view, then overcoming is related to the experience of the Christian life. It's not related to the work of Christ on the cross. It would be related to his spiritual life on the earth when he set the precedent for the spiritual life of the church age believer. Now, when we look at Scripture, there are two overcomers that are mentioned in Scripture. The first is the believer in 1 John that we just referred to. The other is the Lord Jesus Christ, and this is referred to by the Lord in John 16.33. This is a vital passage for understanding this whole doctrine of the overcomer believer. In John 16.33... Jesus says to his disciples, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. What did we talk about? Reconciliation brought peace. That's the foundation, Romans 5, but it's not what Jesus is talking about here because of the context. We'll get to that in a second. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Now, let's make a couple of observations related to context here before we get into uh, the verb. These things I have spoken to you is what Jesus has just taught 
his disciples. This is part of the upper room discourse. John chapter 13, he taught the disciples about the importance of cleansing. He uh, told Judas to leave. He cleansed the room of the one unbeliever, leaving only believers. He then began to teach them about key principles for the spiritual life in the church age. He told them that I give you a new commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. In John chapter 14, he talks about the coming of the comforter, another comforter, one like himself who would indwell us, the Holy Spirit. John chapter 15, he talks about the key to the spiritual life is abiding in Christ. John chapter 16, he comes back to tying all these concepts together. Love, abiding in Him, the coming of the Holy Spirit. And he concludes by saying, These things, that which I've been teaching you since we we had the Passover meal, these things I have spoken to you in order that you may have peace. Now, is he teaching them in these chapters, John 13 through 16, how to have a relationship with Him based on reconciliation and justification? Or is He teaching believers who are already saved how to experience the ongoing peace of God in their post-salvation spiritual life? It's the latter. He's addressing believers. He is not addressing Unbelievers. These chapters focus on post-salvation spiritual life truth, not salvation truth. He's teaching the disciples that they're going to stay in the world, but in the world they will have adversity and tribulation. But what will give them victory in the midst of the world is the fact that he has already done something. He has overcome the world. Now, let's go back again. I want to make sure you understand what, what, the, what I'm saying here. If overcomer is a term that relates to salvation, then the victory has to do with victory over sin and what Christ did on the cross. But if the overcoming is related to the spiritual life, then it's not related to the work of Christ on the cross. And the verb here... The verb form that Jesus uses for the verb nikao in that last statement, I have overcome the world, is the perfect tense verb, which indicates its completed action. Before Jesus was arrested in Gethsemane, before he was beaten and whipped, before he was taken through the various trials, before he was nailed to the cross, before the God the Father imputed to him the sins of the world, he had already completed the defeat, his victory over the world. It is not the work on the cross. His defeat of the world was not related to his sin payment penalty on the cross. He says, I overcame the world. The world is distinct from the issue of sin. The, the, overcoming the world is a Christian life issue, not an eternal life issue. I hope I've made that clear, because when we get over to 1 John 5, we'll have to do some other work there to understand what, what John is really saying. What John says in the whole book of 1 John, if you haven't gone through my series on it, the whole book of 1 John is a commentary by the Apostle John and an explanation of what Jesus taught in the Upper Room Discourse. The, the parallel vocabulary is, is overwhelming. It is so obvious. He talks about all the same things that Jesus talked about in the Upper Room 
discourse. So Jesus has already completed action. He's already overcome the world before he ever uh, goes to the cross, before he ever deals with the sin problem. Overcoming the world is part of phase two in the Christian life. It's learning how to apply the spiritual life precedent of the Lord Jesus Christ in his life. How did he live his spiritual life? He lived it on the basis of the indwelling Holy Spirit, and he lived it on the basis of the Word of God. And that's what he bequeathed to us as the body of Christ in this church age. So we have to learn that, and we have to look at how Jesus overcame the world in uh, the, during the first advent. It's not dealing with sin per se. It's dealing with this whole issue related to the world. This is what we find in Romans 12.2. The command there is, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And what we have at the beginning there, that word, do not be conformed, is the perfect uh, passive imperative a second person plural verb of suschematizo, suschematizo. And this is a really important word. It's based on the, the, the root schema, meaning form. And it means to be conformed to a certain pattern or mold, to be pressed into a mold, to be formed into a mold, to be guided uh, along a certain path by external pressures. And that's a great word for describing the world system, because the world system basically describes the value system, the thought forms, all the trends of a culture surrounding anybody. And from the day you're born, you learn all the values, all the thought forms, all the uh, uh, thinking thought systems of the culture around you. And we get pressured through peer pressure and through images on television and through statements that we hear from teachers, from parents, from, from friends. And this shapes the way we think, the way we make decisions, what we think is important. It shapes our priorities. And all of that puts a certain pressure on us to conform to the mold of the culture around us. But God says we are to be nonconformists. And we're not to be conformed to the world. And here the word in the Greek is ion, that is the spirit of the age. It's not the same word that we have in uh, John 16:33, where Jesus says that he had overcome the world. That's the cosmos. That refers to another aspect of the same thing. These words are used almost interchangeably. It has the same idea here. The word ion has the idea of the zeitgeist, the Germans would say, the spirit of the age, the thought forms of the age. And we are, the solution is to be transformed. This is the Greek word metamorpho, which means to be completely changed, have a complete change of form. And the idea is that it changes the way we think, changes our character. It transforms us from the inside out. So we are to be transformed how? By the renewing of your mind. Now let me make a little observation here. If the solution for something is your thinking, then what's the problem? Thinking. See, it, it, the solution has to has to be uh, consistent with the problem. 
And the problem in, in worldliness is not what we do, but it is the kind of thinking that leads to what we do. It is being conformed to the uh, ideas of the, uh, the popular ideas of the culture around us. And Jesus says that he defeated or had victory over this pressure before he ever went to the cross. Now, let's back up a minute and take another doctrine and bring it in just to add a little clarity here. Remember, the believer has three enemies. We have the enemy of our own sin nature. Every one of you has a sin nature, and that is the internal enemy. Then there are two external enemies, the devil and the world. Now, Satan had a certain kind of thinking when he rebelled against God. And that, that thinking was based on arrogance. It was based on autonomy, that I can be my own law. I can do it my own way. I can define uh, truth the way I want to define truth. I can define worship the way I want to define worship. And uh, when we started this morning before I introduced that first hymn, I talked about how worship today has really uh, been diluted and deteriorated because since the 60s, people are redefining how, what, what, what it is that worship is all about and how you evaluate worship by what's going on inside of you, whether or not you feel like you worshiped when you came to church. And it's totally different from what preceded uh, the church in the previous uh, 1900 years of church history. It didn't define worship that way. There's been a radical change that's taken place because of the pressure from what is valuable to the world system around. So in most churches today, we have a very worldly form of worship. They have been pressed into the mold of the, uh, of the world around us. They are, uh, have the same value system when it comes to uh, worshiping God. So we have to have a, a complete change uh, take place. Now, Jesus conquered that in the first advent. How did he do it? What did it look like? That's what we'll have to come back to next time. What we see this time in terms of Revelation 3.21 is that we are to be overcomers and that the way to do this has been modeled for us by Jesus Christ. Revelation 3.21 says that to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat on my Father's throne. But the pattern is how the Lord Jesus Christ overcame the world. So the question we have to ask, answer in terms of our own spiritual life is when did this take place with the Lord Jesus Christ and how did he overcome the world and what do we learn from that so that we too can follow in that same pattern. So we'll come back and begin with that next time. Let's bow our heads together and close in prayer. Our Lord, we're indeed grateful that we have the pattern of our Lord Jesus Christ to go to, that we do not look to other human beings, we do not look to church history, we look to the Lord Jesus Christ. He set the precedent for us in our spiritual life. And Father, this is available to every one of us. It doesn't matter our background, it doesn't matter our education, it doesn't matter uh, what sins we've committed, what failures we've had. We know that you've provided this graciously to every one of us. But more importantly than even that is our eternal status. And at this time, we pray that if there's anyone here 
this morning that is unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal status, that they would make, take this time to make that sure and certain. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. When he was there hanging between heaven and earth, God the Father imputed to him every single sin in your life, every sin you've committed, every sin you will commit. And it was paid for. It was dealt with. It's no longer an issue. The issue for you is to put your faith alone in Christ alone, to trust him. And at that instant, you have eternal salvation. Once you're saved, the issue is different. The issue is now, what do I do with this so great salvation that I have? What do I do in terms of advancing, in terms of growing, in terms of becoming an overcomer? And that's the challenge. And it's a challenge we must face every single day. Are we going to put the Lord first? Are we going to put the details of life first? And how we answer that question determines whether at the end of our life we're stamped as an overcomer or as a defeated believer, victorious or failure. Father, we pray that you take these things, challenges with them, that we may live our lives to your honor and glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.